Hey, it's Bob Stoffer. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Oilers Now ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer, weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. We return to Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer. Brought to you by Digitex. Managed print services to keep your printing costs down? Yeah, Digitex does that. D-I-G-I-T-E-X dot C-A on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. Welcome back, everybody. Bob Stoffer joining you. This is Oilers Now. Hope you're uh, having the best uh, possible Wednesday you can have. We are. Uh, we just did NHL today for Elite Promotional Marketing, building tailored branded programs where your order is done on time, every time. Elite Promotional Marketing. And uh, talking to Drew Shamahorn, and he mentioned, uh, Bob, please pass along to everybody out there to stay safe and uh, continue to stick with it. We'll get through this. At this time, we're going to bring our Oilers Now headliner for touchback safety. Touchback remains open for training. Touchback is taking all necessary precautions to ensure the safety of their staff and their clients. Longtime NHL player, uh, agent, former general manager, and now with the NHL Network. And I'm not sure if he's in Minnesota or if he's in New York. But uh, joining us on the uh, blower at this time is Brian Lawton. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? I am safe and well in Minnesota, Bob. Well, and that's uh, for our listeners out there, and this is updated uh, about an hour ago. Uh, the state of uh, New York currently is at 30,000 cases, 4,400 new cases of coronavirus, 285 have now passed away. And uh, conversely, Minnesota is below 300 cases at this time. Brian, you'll be interested to know Alberta is at 350 cases and has done over 30,000 tests in this province. So testing was uh, a part of the success that South Korea had. The other part was they they cut the border and cut travel down with China fairly quickly uh, against the direction of the World Health Organization. But that's another conversation for another time. It really is. How how much of like do you find yourself watching CNN or NBC or or Fox or ABC or whatever you watch as a news source, or do you find you have to get away from it? Just be, or sort of how do you handle that that, that kind of things right now? Uh, you know what? I'm a big news watcher as it is. As much as I love hockey and all consuming as it can be for us, I try to stay current on other events around the world. I just think it's important for balance. But there's no doubt that that has been ramped up significantly under these times where I've, you know, there's been not as much today, but certainly some days where I feel like I've watched eight, 10 hours. And again, two major stimulus packages, both in Canada and the U.S. Uh, getting pushed through so uh, you know hopefully that'll give uh, a lot of people in both countries um, you know uh, some help here during some very difficult times do you do you get much I mean you are in Minnesota Uh, it is my experience traveling around the league over the course of the last 12 years some have suggested that St. Paul is a bit of a provincial market Um, some have said the same thing about Buffalo about Winnipeg and about Edmonton I, I would say my experience going into Minnesota is I got a lot of pride in their hockey and their high school hockey, their college hockey, but they're also very aware of uh, of Canada 
in Minnesota, just like Buffalo would be very aware of Canada. Those would be a couple. The Detroit would be another U.S. market, uh, and part of its proximity in Buffalo and Detroit's case to Canada itself. But have you, you have you do you still keep an eye on what's sort of happening here in Canada as well? Oh yeah, Minnesotans Minnesotans are very in tune with Canada and what's happening. Obviously, it borders Canada, and you know there's a rich history not only for hockey but you know the outdoors are a big draw here in minnesota and there's a lot of cross-border fishing lake of the woods uh other areas so it's always very much a function and when it comes to hockey it is treated a lot like hockey is treated in some of the canadian markets you don't have to worry about uh having run a team in a southern state obviously in tampa and you're always were worried about having to convince people to come to a hockey game, whereas here in Minnesota, that's not the case. You don't have to convince people to come. You don't have to educate them on the game. They love it. It's in their DNA, and it just has a little bit of that Canadian flavor, as you're pointing out. All right. Uh, we're going to have a little fun right here. Uh, we're joined by Brian Lawton, who for years headed up Octagon's hockey agency. Yesterday, it was announced that the WHL would have their first ever exceptional player. His name is Connor Bedard, and uh, and, and I guess not. It's a player from the West, and it has to be approved by the national body. But anyways, bottom line here is this kid's likely to go first overall in WHL Bantam draft. I will tell you, Brian, the last two number one overall picks in the WHL Bantam draft are from Edmonton, a kid named Matthew Savoy. Uh, who got 22 games in this season, though he was not granted exceptional player status. Uh, he got knocked out, uh, a hellacious hit. He's an undersized, skilled, silky, uh, gifted player. The guy the year before is a guy named Dylan Gunther, plays for the Edmonton Oil Kings. Edmonton brought him along slowly, eight games as a 15-year-old. Um, he basically scored 26 goals, 59 points, 58 games as a 16 this year. He's going to be a top-ten pick next year. I bring up uh, I bring up uh, Connor Bedard because I asked a question about a guy that played six years of major junior hockey. Glenn Goodall was the answer that we were looking for. We've received over 60 texts from people. I did not know this, that Glenn is currently working in central Alberta as a real estate agent. Um, I believe he scored more points in junior hockey than any player to have never played a game in the NHL. So he has uh, that as a trivia point. But as a former agent, I want to sort of discuss with you, when you have a guy that wants to get exceptional status that to me is uh so he can play major it's pretty clear in that scenario which path the player is going is it not yeah it definitely is it definitely is and you know the stats better than me but if i'm not mistaken he's what the seventh player in chl history to be granted yes is that correct yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Tavares. So, so we know we know the names, right? Tavares, McDavid, obviously. Aaron Eckblad is another one that comes to mind. Sean Day, another one that eventually a guy that was drafted much later than people would have thought. Huge, huge kid. Um, Joe Valeno, right. right? And then Shane Wright is the other one. And Shane Wright. So, what does really that tell you? Is the question? Yeah. Well, and. and there you go. This hasn't happened often, and it's never happened with a player out of the West. So a lot of people thought Tyler Benson, who uh, was a big kid as a 14-year-old and didn't really grow in height after the age of 14. A lot of people thought in 2012, 2013, he might be that guy. 
but he's they all went that major junior right uh, route. Day's situation, if I'm not mistaken, Brian, that was partially because Canada wanted him to play for Canada because he yep. had the option of playing for the Canada or U.S. Is that what you remember right. about it? That's right. Yeah. It is. So It's exactly what I remember about it, followed up by the New York Rangers selecting him in the draft, and I remember talking to the Rangers about that, and they couldn't believe they could get him. In the, I think he went 81st overall. Yeah. Um, you know, they didn't have a first-round pick, I remember, that year or a second, I don't think. So they were pretty excited about it. Um, but that has not really worked out for them, in all honesty, to be transparent about it. Um, you know, a lot of things can go right and wrong, obviously, when you're selecting or when you're moving up a player this young that quickly. And, yeah, it's great for Connor McDavid, certainly great for John Tavares, even Aaron Ekblad, three guys that went on to be selected uh, first overall. But it's not great for everybody. It's not something Hockey Canada takes lightly. Um, This one, to me, is really interesting because we haven't seen it in the West. Um, You know, we have different ages for the draft, obviously, in the West versus the rest of uh, the other two leagues. So I'm curious to see how it works out. Well, what's interesting, and I'll just share this with you, uh, Brian, it's my perception that a lot of people thought Savoy was a better player than Gunther until about halfway through this year. And, uh, again, Savoy is the most recent number one pick, and he he got into 22 games. I think he had, like, seven points. Uh, He did get knocked out cold with a hit, which is always a concern. Is he going to get hurt playing ahead of, you know, kids that could be five years older than him? And the Edmonton Oil Kings had Gunther and brought him along really slowly. And I had a lot of conversations with their GM, Kurt Hill, about that. And it's tough to argue with what ended up happening in the second half of the year because the kid took off as a 16-year-old. When you were representing players, now, is it it fair to say most of the guys that you personally represented were American? Um, No, I had more diversity than that. You know, when I was building Octagon, it was very much based... I'm a numbers person and on the metrics of where players were coming from around the world. So my strategy was very simple. It was to put people in those regions. And so we ended up with a lot of Finns, a lot of Russians. I used to go to Russia all the time. A lot of people don't know that about me, but when I first started as an agent and when I wanted to ramp up quickly, the only place you could really get kids that were still 17 uh, in some cases, even 18 years old, was to go to Russia because it was that much more difficult. That's what I did, and it was very successful. I represented a lot of American players, but there was more diversity there than people would have known, um, and a lot of that was on purpose. That was part of the strategy. How often did you have the discussion with kids about the potential of going major junior versus NCAA? Um I've never been a great rule follower, Bob. That's just a a commonality of my personality, I guess. So if you look back at the history of uh, major junior, to me, I thought served uh, different purposes than college. And I was putting kids like, I I had American kids like Darren Quint that were playing in Seattle. That was kind of unheard of. Darren was from New Hampshire. Yeah, I was matching players up with what I thought the traits were for the different leagues. And then I was using Major Junior as a loophole, much like people saw 
um, me and Ryan, you know, I had guys like Mark Parrish, Ben Clymer, Dan Tompkins, another one, long before Mike Van Ryan and those guys went through it. So it was a loophole back then that uh, was never covered off by the NHL where you could take it as an American player, especially after he was drafted, and essentially get him to unrestricted free agency status. Uh, much quicker. That's what happened for Mark Parrish. Some people may remember he scored 53 goals in 53 games in Seattle as a 20-year-old. Uh, ben Plymer did the same thing. Eventually um, got away from the Boston Bruins, who had originally drafted him. And uh, it was just, a, 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 to me, Major Junior was a great place to play hockey for the kids that I'm talking about because they were all were on a pro track. Whereas yeah. I saw a lot of other kids that were not necessarily on that track that I always encouraged to go to college, to be honest with you. You mentioned Darren Quint, and for Oilers fans from the mid-90s, they would remember certainly Joaquin Gage, who does some media work in town, would remember this two goals in four seconds as a member of the Winnipeg Jets against Joaquin Gage in a game in which the Oilers got uh, blown up. That was a non-playoff year for the Oilers. I think it was 94-95 off the top of my head. We are joined right now by Brian Lawton of the NHL Network. So, Brian, one of the questions that I've had during the course of this week has been whether or not, given the far more uh, significant, uh, newsworthy and challenging times that we're having right now with COVID-19, does this provide the opportunity? And you're, you know, you, you ran, you know, arguably the top agency in the business out there. Does this give the NHLPA and Gary Bettman and the league an opportunity to sit down and map out a long-term plan when we do get back that goes beyond 2022, maybe even mirrors something like the length of the NFL NFLPA deal? It was. Yeah, that was a close vote, but it still got approved, and they now have labor peace until 2030. Should the NHL be following, you know, if you were still putting on your hat with a, an agency perspective, would you want a, uh, a work balance put in place to ensure that there'd be no labor stoppages because we're going to need to rebuild this thing a little bit? Yeah, there's some real short-term challenges, obviously, that are out there in terms of what happens to the salary cap. We don't know what's going to happen to the league yet, but you can certainly run models in terms of what the possibilities are. And if for some reason, by some chance, there wasn't hockey again this year, then, you know, if you really went by the loss of revenue, right, I'm supposed to be well-versed in this, so I, I think I can do it pretty simply for everybody, but... You know, we're losing 12% of the regular season as it is right now. We're losing the playoffs. Um, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, revenue could be down anywhere from $600 million to a $1 billion. What does that mean to the salary cap? I can make it really quick. If I extrapolated that out, the salary cap, by the numbers, the way it's set up right now, would actually be in that 67 to $71 million range next year. Now, that would be completely unworkable, obviously, for a lot of clubs. So, you know, I really think it's in both parties' best interest to get together and figure out what the world looks like because you're going to need some transition rules, I think, potentially for what could happen. Now, maybe we'll go back and we'll finish the regular season and we'll have a, a playoff 
and revenues will be restored, and I don't think it's an issue. But you have to plan for those things, and that's the burden right now. But when you add it all up, it is exactly as you're suggesting, Bob. This is a golden opportunity for both players and the league to get together and set the future. I'm not sure how much work has gone in on the player side, and I talk to players a lot, but I haven't felt like there was an overwhelming amount of preparation leading up to this time in terms of being ready to make a deal. So I think that's part of the process that's going to have to transpire quickly here. I'm told that that is happening very quickly. Uh, certainly recently on the NHL side, I think it's already they were already marching down that way where they'd like to see labor peace. So I'd say they're probably a little bit ahead, but at the end of the day, it won't matter. Both sides will get caught up. And it's a, a great opportunity to put something together for the next five to hopefully 10 years like the NFL. Well, uh, you know, we're sitting here with a pandemic uh, pandemic at this stage, Brian, that, that hopefully doesn't uh, match the overall impact of, you know, something that happened 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. And... Uh, you know, bottom line to me is I, I think that uh, most rational thinking people are sitting there saying, you know what, you're privileged to work in hockey, be it as a player, as a, you know, a coach manager, as an owner, as an executive, as a broadcaster, whatever. Surely there's got to be enough uh, uh, money to go around and, and an understanding that you're going to have to rebuild. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying to you is something like, like what we're going through right now provides a little bit of clarity and checks some of the... The, the challenges and maybe a little bit of the distrust at times that has occurred in the past checks that kind of stuff at the door and maybe takes us to a better place as well. I, I, I genuinely, maybe I'm being Pollyanna-ish here, Brian, but I kind of think that way. No, I, I don't think you are, and I think that it's been a rough ride in the past at times between players and the National Hockey League. Um, I don't think anybody enjoyed that. I'm obviously very good friends with the people that run the National Hockey League. And in some respects, you know, there, there was a, a bitterness on the player side. Um, the game continued to prosper, and I see a lot less of that existing today. I was at the forefront of that as a player, you know, going all the way back to 92, where there were just so many inequities it was difficult for players to accept. That was back in the early 90s. That's not necessarily the case now. I would suggest strongly it's nowhere like that. Guys, for the most part, that I speak to as players in the National Hockey League, and it's a lot of them, are very, very grateful for the opportunities that they have to play what we all consider the greatest game on earth, but also get paid very well for it. That was missing when I was a player. I made $80,000 my first year in the National Hockey League as the first overall pick. Um, that was a long time ago, So, and it's not about me. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to use it as a reference point. Uh, it's changed. I think both sides are generally much more happy today than they were back then, and, that, and those types of attitudes, those types of environmental changes today in terms of the landscape of the NHL are, are going to help, I believe, uh, both parties come together and get this done. And I think it could be a silver lining if we go through this time and somehow hockey uh, gets together and figures that out in a more seamless way than it's been the last uh, couple times around anyhow. Well stated, Brian. As always, we appreciate your time. Stay safe in Minnesota, and uh, we'll touch base next week, okay? 
All right, my pleasure. We're rerunning the draft on NHL Network, Bob. There's some excitement for you. <laughs> I wish we could get it. Remember, that's the challenge. We don't get it up here. All right, awesome stuff, Brian. Thank you. All right. See you later. That is uh, Brian Lawton, who uh, was the number one overall pick in the 1983 NHL draft, had a uh, lengthy NHL career, uh, was a top flight agent, uh, really sort of uh, elevated Octagon into the forefront of agencies. Octagon, by the way, currently represents two of the most prominent Edmonton Oilers, Leon Dreisaitl, as well as Ryan Nugent Hopkins. So Dreisaitl is currently with Mike Liute of Octagon. And Ryan Nugent Hopkins is with Rick Vallette, who is out of, uh, I think it's high, I think he's out of High River, Alberta. All right, 12.54 in Edmonton. We're going to take a quick timeout. You can text us on our Ashley Fine Floors text line. Thank you to all, I, I did not know, certainly in central Alberta, there's a lot of Glenn Goodall fans. This is Oilers Now. Hi, I'm James Neal from the Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer on 6.30 Chet. Welcome back, everybody. You can uh, text us at any time at 1257 on our Ashley Fine Floors text line. Got David Staples coming up momentarily, but first I want to get to a text or two. Uh, Craig texts the show, hey, Bob, when Connor was in Erie, who uh, were his line mates? I know he had a few, but uh, who were the two during his tenure that he spent the most time with, if you know? Well, I know in the playoffs in 2015, Nick Betts, who ended up playing U-sports hockey, and Nick Batiste uh, were the two guys that he played a lot with five-on-five. Five. Um, they also, I think they traded for Remy Alley that year, who spent some time in the NHL. And then Dylan Strome played a lot with Alex Dabrinkit. So there you go. Uh, this text comes in asking, Bob, if this season is done, what happens if they can't start on time in the fall next year? I don't know. I don't know what to tell you on that front. And you know what? No one knows at this stage. What I do know is we are going to go to a global news weather traffic update with Eileen Bell and return with David Staples from the Cult of Hockey. Oilers Now with Bob Stoffer, Weekdays at noon on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad.